June of 2020, our class had its first session. Reading classic novels soon became our one obsession. With COVID-19 raging, we had nowhere we could go. So we zoomed in and recorded this stupid fucking show. We're reading books. We're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. We're reading books. We're killing cedars. And Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Charlotte is our teacher and she's very optimistic that she can teach us something, even something quite simplistic. She's really quite an expert, has a dog named Mr. Darcy. But if she thinks we can learn, she's got her head right up her arsey. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, Stop it, please, we're reading books. We're killing cedars at Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Daniel plays with puppets, which is just a little weird. He also is Canadian and has a luscious beard. Jerry has just graduated university, so she's the baby of this podcast, don't you see? Andrew is the oldest and has trouble concentrating. He thinks he's pretty funny, but his sense of humor is grating. Emmy is a doctor, so she knows things quite obscure, but her degree's in agriculture, so she mostly knows me more. We're reading books until we're sore. My eyes! We're answering Miss Charlotte and competing for a score. Ask us why we're doing this, we really couldn't say. But listen and just maybe you'll enjoy it anyway. We're reading books, we're killing trees. Our housemates and our spouses are saying, stop it, please. Oh, we're God. reading books, we're killing cedars. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. At Miss Charlotte's finishing school for wayward readers. Hello and welcome to Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, a podcast about reading old-timey books. This is episode 5. What? No room service? Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers is an audio production of the Oklahoma Theatre Group, or YTG, a non-profit theatre company based in Japan. If you want to support the theatrical work we do, you can head over to ytg.jp and click the support button. On this show, we have four readers, including myself. Each episode, we sit down talk about the week's assigned chapters, make presentations, and answer questions to compete for points. Our teacher and the giver and taker of points is the titular Miss Charlotte. At the end of the show, the reader with the most points will be dubbed Teacher's Pet, and the reader with the lowest score, frequently in the negative numbers, will wear the dunce cap. It is only an imaginary dunce cap, but it is purple and currently weighs heavily upon my brow. That's right, in a sudden reversal last episode, I am the current class dunce. When uh, we complete our reading of Wuthering Heights, all these points will be totaled and the winner will get... something. If you have suggestions, feel free to email us at reader at ytg.jp. I will now introduce our cast in order of hair color, lightest to darkest. First, we have Miss Charlotte Sampson. Oh, she of dirty blonde tresses, student of Victorian literature, and master of long pauses, who hails from Cape Breton in Canada and is currently living in Ottawa, waiting to resume her studies in the fall. Next up, our ginger ninja, calling in from Saitama, master of puppets, both shadow and corporeal, is Daniel Wishes. He also has a podcast called Weird Movie Club. Go check it out. Okay, and then this is where my system breaks down because Judy, Emmy, and myself all have black hair. So, um, 
I, however, have the most gray in my hair, so I believe I'm next. I am Andrew Woolner. I do the intros and stuff, and I'm the one who roped everybody into this. I make theater, and you can check that out at ytg.jp. Next, uh, I guess because she spends so much time in the great outdoors running 100k races and climbing mountains for the hell of it, uh, her hair must be bleached a little lighter by all that sun. So we've got Dr. Emmy Doe, farmer, athlete, and two-time teacher's pet calling in from Shinjuku, Tokyo. Maybe we can knock her off her throne this episode. Uh, and finally, with jet black hair and a twinkle in her eye, is Judy Ito, assistant artistic director at the Yokohama Theatre Group, theatre creator, and given the fact that she's been with YTG for more than a year, a glutton for punishment. All right. Hi, guys. Let's get reading. <laughs> Chapter 13. Edgar takes care of Kathy for two months while Heathcliff and Isabella are off on their honeymoon. Also, Kathy is pregnant? Nellie receives a letter from Isabella, which she still happens to have on her person in her pocket so she can read it to Lockwood verbatim. <laughs> in the letter, Isabella reveals that things aren't going well at Wuthering Heights. Everyone there is being mean to her, there's nowhere for her to sleep, and Heathcliff is more of a devil than a man. Chapter 14. Edgar refuses to have anything to do with his sister. Nellie goes to Wuthering Heights by herself. When she gets there, both Isabella and Heathcliff expect her to have a note from Edgar, but there isn't one. Heathcliff demands that Nellie take a note to Kathy. She refuses him 20 times, but is forced into an agreement when he threatens to go into Thrushcross Grange, packing heat. Chapter 15. Nellie waits for four days until Edgar is out of the house to give Kathy the letter. And then as soon as she does, Heathcliff bursts in anyway. So I guess the letter didn't really matter. Kathy and Heathcliff <laughs> have a romantic slash toxic reunion. It's just a lot. Whew. Heathcliff doesn't want to leave Kathy since she's dying and ends up staying too long. Edgar gets home and catches them together. But Heathcliff is all like, hey, Edgar, maybe we shouldn't fight now since Kathy's all dying. And he relents. Heathcliff goes outside to wait by some trees to hear news of Kathy's fate. Chapter 16. That night, Kathy dies, but not before giving birth to a beautiful, bouncing baby girl. Whoops. Edgar wanted a boy because of, you know, needing a male heir. Kathy had only been pregnant for seven months, so the girl is premature. Nellie gives Heathcliff the bad news, even though he already knows somehow, and he curses Kathy's ghost and bangs his head on a tree until he gets <laughs> blood and brains everywhere. Nellie leaves a window open so that Heathcliff can sneak in and see Kathy's body. While he's there, he presumably found some hair and a locket around her neck, presumably her hair. Also, presumably, he wondered who the hell keeps their own hair in a locket around their own <laughs> neck. He threw it on the ground and stuck his own hair in there instead. Nellie found the hair on the ground and then twists it around Heathcliff's hair and sticks it back in the locket. I guess she has a hair of romantic nature about her, so I couldn't find a pun there. Kathy was buried on a green slope in the corner of the kirkyard. Hindley didn't come to the funeral. Isabella was not invited. And also, Nellie says, Edgar was also buried in the same spot. Wait, what? Edgar dies? Whoa, Nellie. How about a spoiler alert next time? I have purposely made one mistake in my review to annoy Miss Charlotte. Do you know what one intentional mistake was? My only guess would be... Heathcliff wasn't just a man or a devil, he was a man or mad or a devil, was the actual line. But I don't think you would have just done an admission. I'm not your... really quoting any lines, I kind of put things into my own words anyway, so. Would the class like a hint? Yeah. It has to do with a number. It's not the number of months that Kathy's been pregnant, is it? No, because she's definitely our... seven months. Well, Maybe how many months that they were 
Edgar was taking care of Kathy? Another hint, nothing to do with time passing. Oh. Uh, da, 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 da. I think we might I think we might have missed this one. Well, it um, seems that Miss Charlotte got it. Daniel, would you like to inform the rest of the class? Yes, it wasn't 20 times that she refused Heathcliff. It was 50 times. Oh. <laughs> Nellie Dean, Nelly Dean she, she says she refused. Well, Mr. Lockwood, I argued and complained and flatly refused him 50 times. But in the long run, he forced me to an agreement. Presumably, this is Nellie exaggerating. I think I want to just stop reading and then listen to Daniel's summaries. Well, that's what, that's what our listeners get to do. <laughs> but we have work to do. It's time for the vocab corner with me, Andrew Wilner. I will be reviewing some of the weirder words we encountered while reading chapters 13 through 16 of Wuthering Heights. Ganging. Wilt thou be ganging? That's a Yorkshire dialect thing. It just means going. One thing I couldn't find, Charlotte, if you know, moving his lantern jaws. Like, just, does that just mean big? Like, like I mean, that's, that's how I took it. I'm not entirely certain how old that expression is, though. Because I don't have library database access until I'm yeah. registered in fall. The OED, the Oxford English Dictionary, is an excellent resource in terms of telling you the approximate age of certain words and expressions. It will even give literary examples of when the first usage of X definition for a certain word or term came about. So yeah, if you can score that on your own somehow, it's great. If you are a university student or have access to a library database, check to see if your library has access to the OED. It's good stuff. Moving on. Fibble is a smooth stick used for stirring broth or porridge. I, I imagine it like a paint stick, <laughs> except for stirring porridge. Um, expostulated does not mean to pop pimples. It means to rebuke someone. Dree and dreary. It's a, it's, it's a hundred percent, Emily Bronte just put that there because of the, the repeating sounds, the assonance, because dree is a synonym for dreary. So she's basically saying dreary and dreary. Brack, I think it's brack or bratch, B-R-A-C-H, is a female hound or a bitch hound, as the dictionary says. A beck, they talk about a beck behind the thrush cross grange. It's a small brook or creek. Heterodox is just basically unorthodox, so not in line with accepted dogma. Frame off, uh, when uh, Nellie has said she's basically, the, the dog will be set on her if she doesn't frame off. It just basically means piss off, leave. Slattern. This one's interesting, and it leads me into my deep dive for today, which is the word slut. I know you all think you know what the word slut means, but sometimes... When you're reading an older text, you hit a word you think you know the meaning of, but actually it had a different meaning a century or two ago. So a wonderful example of this is slut. The common usage of this word for us now is a pejorative used to describe a person, usually a woman, who has, for reasons that we're not going to get into in this podcast, who has multiple sexual partners over a certain arbitrary threshold. The term has been reclaimed in recent years, but in mainstream society, it is generally considered an insult. However, historically speaking, the word slut did not predominantly refer to sexual behavior. I had a secondary site that referenced the OED, and it dates the word to about uh, 1400, when it meant a dirty, slovenly, or untidy woman. And according to Etym Online, which is my favorite place for etymology on the internet, uh, by the middle of the 1400s, slut could be used to describe a kitchen maid. So you, you'd, if you have a loaf of bread that has like hard, like lumps of bread in it, those were called sluts pennies, 
but the term wasn't even necessarily pejorative. Samuel Pepys apparently wrote in 1664 in his diary, My wife called up the people to washing by four o'clock in the morning, and our little girl Susan is a most admirable slut, and pleases us mightily, doing more service than both the others, and deserves wages better. So while the woman of loose character definition did exist from almost the beginning, the dominant meanings were untidy or kitchen maid, and the word would have been understood in this way by most people through to the 19th century when Wuthering Heights was written. So when Heathcliff says of Isabella, she degenerates into a mere slut, he means that she's changed from a fine lady to a filthy serving girl. And slattern is just basically another word for the same thing. Thank you very much, Andrew. Um, I'm surprised, you know, being a Shakespearean fellow yourself, that you didn't go with the Queen Mab speech. She that bakes the elf locks in foul, sluttish hairs. Yeah, no, that was just too hard to pick. That was just too much time to pick apart. It would have taken longer to, to deconstruct. So I am, I, have, however, going to have to dock you one point for your pronunciation of Samuel <laughs> Peep's name. Oh, it's Peep's? It's not Peep's. Again, it's spelled another Peppus, word. But... Another word I've only seen in print. So if this podcast doesn't work out, uh, I think we should all open up our own bakery and call it Slut Pennies. Slut Pennies, yes. <laughs> okay, so we've at the part of the show where we do the reader response. So yeah, this is my report. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of the congregation, it is a joy to be with you here this morning. It is the first week of Interdenominational Fellowship Month. As you know, we are inviting a guest speaker from another faith group each Sunday to speak to us this month. Today, we were supposed to have a guest sermon from Dr. Rene Yarrow, the Bishop of Middlespur and renowned theologian. Sadly, I have been informed that she is feeling under the weather today. She's got the shits! I uh, yes, uh, she, uh, I, I, a digestive issue. So instead, and at the very last minute, I might add, we've, we've really done our best given the time pressures. We have reverend- Brother Reverend! Indeed. Brother Reverend Clifton Q. Jewell Jr. Third from the Holy Church of the Wuthering Heights. He will be delivering today's sermon on- is this correct? Read what's on the card, Doc! Uh, today's sermon on kitchen sluts. It's our own darn fault. Woohoo! Darn tootin'! So if I could ask you now to welcome Reverend... Brother Reverend! Ah, uh, yes. Brother Reverend Clifton Q. Jewell Jr. The Third. Reverend... Oh, brother, brother Reverend. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, y'all! Now, I come here today to tell y'all a story. I done read it in the book, Wuthering Heights. See, it ain't no story from the Bible like you're used to. But I tell you, you have enough model glue behind the taco truck, you'll believe anything you read. So, in the story, there's this man called Heathcliff. And he loves his pretty lady called Kathy. She don't <laughs> treat him so good. And anyway, she's married to this other fellow who she also don't treat so nice. His name, same as my cousin's matter of fact, Zedgar. 
Now, Edgar there, he's got a sister. But Star Edgar, not Cousin Edgar, though he's got a sister too called Mabel. But we're not going to talk about her because this story ain't about Cousin Edgar. Besides, Mabel bit me. So, Edgar's got this sister, Mabel. Oh, <laughs> look what I done did there. I went and got him all mixed up with Cousin Edgar after all. Okay, Isabella is the sister's name in the story. Anywho, Isabella has got a mighty hankering for some deep for the, for this Heathcliff fella. She likes the dark and dangerous type, and he is dark and dangerous. Did I mention that everybody's rich? Almost everybody. So so, uh, Kathy, Edgar, Isabella. You understand? We're talking loaded. I mean, sure, not Queen of England level, but you know. Red Lobster level rich here. Yep. Isabella is used to the good life. Now Heathcliff, you grew up with all these people, but he's more of an Arby's man at heart, if you know what I mean. So one thing did done lead to another, and Isabella goes off and gets married to him, even though he don't like her none. Oh, and he tried to kill her dog, Fanny. He even done told her. I'm gonna kill everybody, everybody you care about, except for one. Isabella doesn't think that's her. But survey says, wrong. So they go off. Isabella and Heathcliff go off and get hitched. And after the honeymoon, Heathcliff doesn't bring Isabella back home, except his home ain't exactly his. And also, it's a shithole. Oh, pardon my Francais. But there's dirt everywhere. And there's no servants, but there's one fellow who hates everyone. Oh, and there's a wee little fellow who just as soon stick a dog on you as look at you. So Isabella asks the servant who hates everybody to take her to her room. But there ain't no room for her. She ends up sleeping in the kitchen after making some lumpy oatmeal and smashing it all over the floor because everything's vexing her so... You know, like she thought the idea of Heathcliff was so exciting. So I want you to think about this. You ever had someone in your life who treated you wrong? Like, maybe you had a girlfriend and she said she loved you, but she also said how much you reminded her of her brother. And she made you dress like him? And then one day you found them making out and you realized she was only using you because you kind of looked like him from a distance. So if people saw them together, they'd think it was you and her. Yeah, we all been through that, right? But you know, it's all our fault. I mean, it's easy to blame Cindy Lynn or Heathcliff. And I'm not saying they as angels. Hell no. But they also didn't make a big effort to hide who they were. Heathcliff done tried to kill Isabella's dog. Remember, I told you about that. And Cindy Lynn kept calling me Billy Ray. Was they dishonest? Yeah. Was we stupid? Was we blind? Did we only see what we wanted to see? Yeah, huh? And that's one of the key things the good book, Wuthering Heights, teaches us. Thank you. Uh... Thank you, Reverend... Brother Reverend! Brother, yes, uh, Brother Reverend. Clifton Jewell Jr. the third, everyone. Oh, whoa, 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 wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold, 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 hold up, hold up there. Hold up there. Doc, before I go, I just want to see if any of y'all want to learn more about the Church of the Wuthering Heights. We meet, uh, in your church's parking lot, actually, every Tuesday night, about 10 o'clock. Uh, over on the far side, by uh, by the bushes that, that smell like pee. Although that's mostly because of us. So bring your own lawn chair. Oh, and bring your own copy of the good book, Wuthering Heights. 
Uh, we're a pretty new religion. We don't have so many resources. I've only got this one copy I stole from the bookmobile when I was high on meth. Surely. By saying if you bring drugs, you gotta bring some for everybody. Uh, okay, uh, why don't you go now? Thank you, See brother, round, reverend, etc. etc. Boom, there we go. I apologize. I apologize to anybody from the hillbilly country in the American South for my horrible rendering of that accent. Which part of the South were you trying to do an accent from? Or were, were you just trying to do all of them? All of them. All of right. them at different times. Right. Shall I render judgment on you, Andrew? Do it. Well, render. very diverting, I must say. Good enough for a few moments of amusement. As a reading response. It's really mostly just a summary of a pretty narrow focus of one section of the book, which is fine, but I would like some more attempt at analysis of that particular episode. See, if you're going to be given a sermon, you probably should do some sermoning in the sermon, and not just aimless rambling that does nothing to elucidate the passage in question. However, I must commend you for your creative endeavor. Coming in with something pre-recorded, doing the character work to design the voice, that does count for some. What I do wish to encourage in your reader responses is that you don't become distracted by the artifice of the reader response. Try to keep to the core of what a reader response should be, which is your gut check, which is what you feel from your initial glance at the book captures uh, some essence of whatever aspect you're responding to. So if you're going to do a sermon about the relationship of Isabella and Heathcliff, you should probably have some sort of more concrete moral to it. I mean, I was expecting something fire and brimstone, given the, the fact that we've seen uh, so many fire and brimstone expostulations from Joseph. Though I, I would not ask you to do Joseph's accent. That would be rough. So I'm going to give you a C. Content-wise, in terms of the reader response, I would go lower than that. But you did some creative work. So let's give you a middle-of-the-road grade. Wow, I feel really mean. This is not fun. It's not fun to be mean. <laughs> I'm too nice to be a stern schoolmistress. I'm not cut out for this. Sorry, that's my little crisis of conscious, conscious, well, conscience. So, as is usually the case, uh, these ch four chapters, uh, chapters 13 through 16, have a lot of cool moments of just Catherine and Heathcliff being so very extra. Honestly, that's Catherine and Heathcliff in a nutshell. They're just extra. All of their feelings are big and bombastic. So let's get to it. Catherine and Heathcliff's final moments together. Is this love? Hate? Is it something entirely unique altogether? My question to you all is what the hell kind of relationship do they have by the end of Catherine's life? And what passages are noteworthy in untangling the emotional thicket that is their relationship? I mean, there's a question of, like, 
how much you can really talk about the relationship when she's sort of mentally not all there. She's not she's not the same person she was two chapters ago when she was like giving as good as she got. There's something missing now. I mean, they, they even describe that she's physically changed. She's shorter hair, dreamy eyes. Sometimes I wonder if I'm reading the same book as you, Andrew. <laughs> 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 you just pick all the things that like I guess I glazed over. They make a pretty big deal about it at the beginning of chapter 15 that she's like, she's different. This is not the same person. Oh, I took it at face value. I thought it was like finally revealing that they do love each other in like a really like gross, toxic, not healthy, all the things that you're not supposed to have in a good relationship kind of way. (laughs) Like they want the other to suffer so that they can feel how horrible they feel. Like that's not real. That's not good love. Yeah. It feels like, you know, years and years and years of their thoughts and feelings that they've been storing up and repressing just all coming out at once in like a big, you know, spew of vomit. I found when Heathcliff says, I forgive what you have done to me. I love my my murder, but yours, how can I? So dramatic. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's zero in on that quote. So... I'm going to give you three points for singling out an actual passage, which, if you'll remember, was part of the discussion question. First of all, what's Heathcliff saying when he says, I love my murderer, but yours, how can I? Like, he forgives Catherine for what she did to him, but, like, Catherine kind of killed herself. Yeah, that's kind of what he's getting at here. He's angry at Catherine not so much for hurting him directly, but for her hurting herself. That he could forgive her if she stabbed him through the heart, but her wasting away, dying and leaving him alone, is an act he cannot forgive. It's a jumble, his emotions of whether he wants to see her suffer or whether he doesn't want to see her suffer or whether it's just that she should suffer as he suffers. In fact, at one point, and I'll I'll bring one of the quotes that I prepared. Yes, are you possessed with a devil, he pursued savagely, to talk in that manner to me when you are dying? Do you reflect all those words will be branded in my memory and eating deeper eternally after you have left me? I know you lie to say I have killed you. And Catherine, you know that I could as soon forget you as my existence. Is it not sufficient for your infernal selfishness that while you are at peace, I shall writhe in the torments of hell? Man, he seems kind of resentful that she's not suffering. What the hell is on this dude's mind? He has some mixed feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you get a point for that pedestrian observation. (laughs) I mean, this is all about like that, that whole section where he's saying, I have not broken your heart, you have broken it, and in breaking it, you've broken mine. Because this is, this is the, I think this comes back around to the fact that she never considered him a possibility as an actual marriageable candidate. And so she wanted that, but that was like a write-off. So she broke her own heart. He's not the one who was like, oh yeah, we can't get married. It was her. And it wasn't even like a discussion. It just was never on the table. That's what he's talking about there. That's the act that sort of doomed her and essentially doomed him as well. I think that that's a pretty coherent reading. I'll give you three (laughs) points for it. It does bear some mentioning that even while Heathcliff is abominable to just about everyone else, 
we don't really see a lot of examples of Heathcliff being directly vicious to Catherine. We see a lot of him upbraiding her for how vicious she has been to him, neglect being a form of viciousness, but he's pretty insistent on being blameless as far as his conduct to her is concerned. I don't know, do we think that he's correct? Do we think that he's overstating how much she has hurt him? No, I don't think he's overstating it at all, actually, I think. But I think, I mean, his old, oh, I never did anything to hurt you. That's like, oh, you know, Daniel, I never, I never hurt you. Excuse me while I just set this fire to your house all around you. I'm not going to touch you, but I'm going to burn your house down. I'd prefer you not be in it, but I'm going to burn your house down. And, oh yeah, I'm going to punch your dog. And if you don't mind, I'm going to take this puppet and rip it in two. He's destroying, like, the thing that she's trying to build which is the thing that sort of excluded him. It feels almost like a class commentary. He doesn't hate Catherine. He hates this. There's this system that's set up. And by her going along with it, that just means he's never been allowed in. He's just going to burn everything to the ground, which is essentially what we see him doing. I think they're kind of both equally to blame. I think they've, they've both been obsessed with each other since the beginning and everything they've done, they've sort of done for each other, including her marrying Edgar in her own twisted logic. And neither of them can bear to admit to themselves that they're in error or that they were the ones who caused their whole relationship to not work out for all these years. So that the moment they're reunited, at first they're like, wow, finally we're together. And that lasts for like about 10 minutes before they start blaming each other. <laughs> and then it just turns into the blame game. Sir, but what could Heathcliff have done to make the relationship work? He could have stuck around. He could have not just left. He could have written her a note. She didn't just get married as the, like the minute he left. She took some time. You know, even if he had just finished listening to that conversation in the barn, things would have worked out a lot differently. I'm not sure about that, actually. Because the thing is, I think she would have, if it wasn't Edgar, she would have married someone because she couldn't marry him. Like you say that she never even considered him an option for marriage but she actually did she said like if i did get married to heathcliff we would both end up penniless so she was thinking of it as a possibility and heathcliff apparently knew some secret way to get lots of money in only three years and become really rich so he could have <laughs> just told her like hey don't worry baby i'm just just give me a couple years but no he just went off and it was like uh basically it all comes down to a breakdown in communication which is really the key problem with almost any relationship I, f I feel like Catherine, despite her like wild nature, once she was tamed by the Lintons, that wasn't going to. But she was tamed over that. five weeks, dude. I know, I exactly. I feel like you yeah. could deprogram that. Isabella didn't have any problem with that. And Kathy had two sides. She was like a wild child who grew up roaming on the misty moors with Heathcliff. I think she could have gotten over that pretty easily. Right. But I think. Isabella's other judgment is completely called into question by the fact that she was totally into a guy who was basically telling her to fuck off all the time. She clearly just is a bit, you know, and she soft still, in the head. And she still wasn't as into Heathcliff as Kathy was. So if she could get past that stuff, Kathy should have been able to. And I think she would have been. I don't she, think she would. See, this is where we Heathcliff disagree. If Heathcliff hadn't taken off. Ooh, podcast drama, literary discussion drama. This is the shit I live for. This is the shit I wish my students would do in the middle of class. I mean, I don't know. Andrew started it. He's threatening to come over to my house and set on fire and rip up my puppets. I don't know what the fuck's happening. Anyway, Emmy, jury, interject. Team Heathcliff, Team Kathy, where do you fall? I mean, I, I do think that Heathcliff played his cards wrong right at the beginning. 
even if he knew what Kathy was thinking or could even hear the end of that conversation, I think his attitude would have about the whole thing would have changed, right? Like he thinks that she didn't even consider and like cast him aside or like didn't feel the way he felt about her. He had a whole bunch of assumptions. Yeah. Heathcliff does make a lot of assumptions, not just about Catherine, but about everyone. He seems to presume bad faith on everyone's part. Yeah. Every single person he comes across, he's he's predisposed against them. Which is so interesting because he was saved off the street by this dude. And the well, we don't know the context of that. Yeah, that's right. So but um yeah. but but he was really nice to him. Like the master of the house was like favored him over his kid like his other kids and stuff, you know? Like um but maybe yeah, but that was, was for it was part reasons. of it though, because it was the reversal of that fortune that kind of right. made things difficult for him. And there was always resistance in the rest of the, it was always there's one person who sort of stood up for him and everyone else was kind of against him. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think absolutely Daniel's right that Heathcliff could have made other choices and the relationship would have been different. But I don't think he would have ever gotten the relationship he wanted anyway, because I just think that in that time and place, it was impossible. Maybe he wouldn't have gotten the relationship he wanted, but I think he wouldn't have been as hurt. And I don't know. I think he'd still be pretty still be pretty hurt if she married Edgar Linton. Mm, I had the same perspective as Andrew. I felt like whatever Heathcliff did or could have done, Catherine would have married someone besides him. But now talking about this, the banter or like the blame game on chapter 15 also feels like a blame game of like who could have said what they wanted to hear first. Like who could have started the relationship in a way. Like no one really proposed what they wanted yeah, that's that's maybe something that we can talk about in terms of Heathcliff approaching romantic relationships is pretty passive. He exercises very little agency in pursuing Catherine. We are going to keep coming back to the issue of Heathcliff's place prima facie in society. At first glance, Heathcliff is always going to be marked as not English. And so there's the question of whether he's reluctant simply to pursue Catherine more actively. I mean, he's certainly passive with Isabella, but he has his own reasons for that. Or whether he feels that he has no agency because of his origins. This is a little bit of an aside. Just last night, I discovered that JSTOR, for those of you in academics, especially in the humanities, though, I mean, there's a JSTOR for science, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So JSTOR, the scholarly database, during COVID-19, is actually allowing just general-ass members of the public 100 free articles a month, which for JSTOR is amazing. Anyway, I got on JSTOR. And I scoped an article by Mahalisa von Snydern from ELH, English Literary History, uh, in Spring 95. Uh, that's volume 62, number one, pages 171 to 196. Little citation there for people playing the home game. Entitled Withering Heights and the Liverpool Slave Trade. So we know that Heathcliff 
was picked up on the streets of Liverpool by the elder Mr. Earnshaw, one thing that this article suggests is that because Liverpool was a very significant hub in the late 18th century of the English slave trade, there is a bit of an intimation that Heathcliff might have been a purchase. I mean, mm. we have Nellie Dean's version of events, and Heathcliff, of course, too young to remember. Mm. And the fact that Liverpool was a major port, and there would have been, in the 18th century, some slave traffic in it. So it's not out of the realm of possibility to guess that Heathcliff might have been rescued in the form of being purchased, which means that there is an implicit obligation on Heathcliff's part to serve the family. Mm. So I think, Andrew, when you talk about Heathcliff's resignation to not being able, literally unable, to enter into an equitable relationship with Catherine, we could probably see his early life as an indication of how, how deep that sense goes. That if it seems like he doesn't seize the opportunity, it's because he would have grown up without much sense that seizing any opportunity was possible until he leaves, spends three years doing Lord knows what, and makes his fortune. Anyway, thoughts on that? I mean, if that kind of slave trade existed and the only other knowledge that he would have had of people that looked like him were other people who were purchased, then that would be his understanding of his place, even though he might have been told this like kind of fairy tale of being like rescued, you know? Yeah. And even if Heathcliff is too young to remember the particulars of how he got to Wuthering Heights, you'd still remember as a kid going through horrible privations, that's some trauma shit that you don't just forget about. So when Heathcliff shows up on the scene as a kid, we know nothing of his, of his history, but he would be old enough to remember a pervading sense of misery. And I feel like if we're going to do a deep dive into Heathcliff's motivations, then looking at his origins and putting it in some explanatory historical context as well, can give us a little bit more insight into perhaps why he is so fatalistically resigned to the sheer impossibility of ever being with Catherine in a meaningful way. And why the, the merest hint of that from her is enough to destroy him so. Now, I want to be clear. Oh. I'm not turning Heathcliff into a victim. He deserves a lot of the shit he gets for the shit that he visits on other people. But if we're looking at some way to gauge his motivations. If you, if you, yeah, if you don't get the spade out and start digging into the whole idea of free will um, and, how, <laughs> and how everything sort of, you know, prior events kind of stack up in a sort of like, that's uh, what I'm looking for, like, like you're pinballs. Like a you're a Roomba with a pre-programmed algorithm based on all the different experience data points that you've had in your life. You're attributing way too much intelligence to a Roomba. They just bump into shit. <laughs> <laughs> they really, they, that's how they navigate. Boom, oh, not that way. Boom, not that way. But yeah, yeah. If you don't dig into, if you di don't dig I into the idea of free will. I apologize to any Roombas that might be listening to the podcast <laughs> for, for Andrew's uh, insult there. Well, I think 
we also have to think of like authorial intent to some degree, right? Like how deeply was Emily Bronte thinking about uh, free will in a society that they essentially accepted? I mean, she wasn't a Calvinist, right? Definitely, definitely. So. Her, her dad was, there's some hints, at least, that he sort of skirted the margins of what would sometimes be thought of as low church or even dissenting tradition, which in the context of the Church of England was not quite one of those weird Methodists or, or one of those new sects that's all about, you know, doing away with ritual and just 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 doing what you feel, letting the spirit move you, man. But sort of getting there, approaching that, sort of doing a little bit of sort of charismatic evangelicalism as you can get within a sort of framework of the Church of England. So some of that would have kind of rubbed off a little bit on Emily Bronte, uh, the notion that there's some injustice in being too deterministically placed within a, a, a social framework. It would not have been as, let's say, sophisticated as a, a class or race critique of the present day, but it wasn't entirely off of her radar. So I, I think it's fair to sort of see a proto-class narrative in Heathcliff, but it's rather background. And here's kind of the kicker of literary scholarship. You can go with your gut on a reading, but it does help to sort of get a sense of what both an, an author and a reading public would have known about the state of their world at the time when a work was produced and released. And at the time, the little signs of Heathcliff possibly being this very circumscribed and marginal, marginalized person would have intimated something. It wouldn't have, you know, produced sophisticated class consciousness in the reader. It's not like they would have read Wuthering Heights and gone, wow, this is a compelling narrative about a degraded subaltern trying to find his place in society. No. But they would have caught the hints. Oh, he's a, he's a Lascar from Liverpool. Oh, those poor fellows have a hard go of it, don't they? Like, it, it, it would have been on someone's radar at least, at least a little bit. Right. And this is why Daniel is right in that, in that sense, is that I think there was still a sense that like you could rise above your roots and like mm. make decisions and choices and be noble and wave the Union Jack. So in with those, in, within those strictures, I'm on team, I'm on team, I'm on team Daniel. But I think that if I'm looking at these people as people, I still think that Heathcliff could have made different decisions, but the path wouldn't have ended up being that different. Yeah, I mean, on a team named after me. <laughs> no, <laughs> it's really important that you don't have a team named after you, Daniel. I completely, <laughs> I, I empathize. Are you quarantined at home? Why not try a do-it-yourself Bronte bite? I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so for today's Bronte Bite, uh, since this is the episode where we talk about Catherine's death scene, I thought we would talk a little bit about the death scene of Emily Bronte. I'm not going to go through the whole narration of Emily Bronte's death scene, but 
We do have an account of it from an 1883 biography uh, from Agnes Mary Frances Robinson of Emily Bronte. There's an extended description of her death scene. So she died in 1848, shortly after the death of her brother Branwell. She caught tuberculosis, which happened a lot in the Bronte family, and was very weak and emaciated at the time of her death, but she insisted that she wasn't sick. It was all in her head. She just had to push through it. So as much as she possibly could, she kept to her regular schedule of household chores, even when she was, you know, stumbling and fainting and coughing. And she refused to take any medication. Not that medication for tuberculosis back then would have done much for her. In fact, there were still some people who bled tuberculosis cases, which, when you're coughing up blood, is not a good idea anyway. So whether she would have been helped or hindered by medicine is, is academic, but she just re refused any treatment that would have given her comfort in her final days. It was sort of a weird martyrdom on her part. I don't know. It makes sense to me. If you're coughing up blood, it means you got too much blood. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, that made the class laugh. I'm going to give you two points for that. Wow. Inject some levity into this very mortal discussion of, of life and death. Okay. So one of the final things that she did on the night before her death, and this is from Robinson's biography. Nevertheless, she persisted in rising, dressing herself alone, and doing everything for herself. A fire had been lit in the room, and Emily sat on the hearth to comb her hair. She was thinner than ever now, the tall, loose-jointed, slinky girl. Her hair in its plenteous dark abundance was all of her that was not marked by the branding finger of death. She sat on the hearth combing her long brown hair, but, the, but soon the comb slipped from her feeble grasp into the cinders. She, the intrepid, active Emily, watched it burn and smolder, too weak to lift it, while the nauseous, hateful odor of burnt bone rose into her face. At last the servant came in. Martha, she said, my comb's down there. I was too weak to stoop and pick it up. I have seen that old broken comb with a large piece burned out of it, and have thought it I own more pathetic than the bones of the eleven thousand virgins at Cologne or the time-blackened holy face of Luca. That comb, listeners at home, still exists. It was donated to what is now the Bronte Parsonage Museum in 1928. We can link a picture of it on wherever you link pictures. But yeah, it exists. You can see it. I don't know. I'm pretty excited about going to see this comb. <laughs> <laughs> I want to take a selfie with it and be like, check it out. You can actually see the, the scorch marks on it. This is something touched by the hand of Emily Bronte. Anyway, we ready for the cathartic pop quiz? Cathartic pop Let's quiz. Do it. So now it's time for the cathartic pop quiz. Not cathartic for us readers, Aww. but uh, cathartic for Miss Charlotte because she so, gets to. So cathartic. Yeah. So cathartic pop quiz time. Jumping into it. How long are Isabella and Heathcliff absent on their bizarro honeymoon? Two months. That's correct, Andrew. Two months. I'll give you two points, one for each month. What flowers does Edgar bring Catherine while she is convalescing? Ooh, Emmy. 
crocuses. Mm. Okay, I'll give you three points for that, and one more point to whoever can tell me the color of the crocuses first. White. They're, they're white? You get zero points for that. It was a stab in the dark. Emmy? Golden? Golden crocuses. Oh, that's Correct. right. For one more point. For those of you following along at home, um, this is from Language of Flowers by Kate Greenaway, a Victorian author. Victorians had really extensive code language about flowers and their meanings. If you look under the entry for crocuses, there are a few different meanings. Spring crocuses, which these would be, uh, means youthful gladness. But generally, crocuses, if you were sending a message, means abuse not. Oh. Yeah. If you wanted to tell your lover, don't hurt me, you could send them a crocus. <laughs> now, I cannot at this point in time guarantee whether it had that exact meaning in 1848. Keep that in mind the next time I'm in an abusive relationship. Ooh, ooh, that's grim. Okay. What's the name of Hareton Earnshaw's dog? Ooh. Emmy. Throttler. Throttler, correct. I'll give you three more points for that. But Ow. you've you've swung into the lead, so let's uh <laughs> Can I add that Throttler is this descendant of Skulker, who is the dog who attacked Heathcliff in an earlier chapter? Yes, Andrew, you may indeed add that, and that's worth another two points for you. The parentage of Throttler is Skulker. Okay. Describe to me Hindley Earnshaw's Heathcliff killing weapon of choice. It's a weird pistol knife. It's like one of those things you see in the museum. You're like, they never made those. And it's got like it's like a spring loaded blade that comes out. And he's like, well, he's going to stab him and then he's going to shoot him to get him off the blade or he's going to shoot him and then he's going to stab him to make sure he's dead. Who knows? It's a nutty weapon. And then and, and uh, what's her face? Um, Isabella just wants to touch it. <laughs> she wants to touch it. She needs it. Oh yeah. She yeah. She looks at it and she's like, "The power I could have if I possessed yeah. that." I know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's handy to have a Heathcliff killing weapon around. Uh, it's true. Uh, three points for that, Andrew. Okay. Heathcliff intimates to Nellie that the only thing keeping Edgar Linton alive is that Catherine might suffer from his loss. So, what bloodthirsty act? Does Heathcliff imagine doing to Edgar, quote, the moment her regard ceased? Was that a hand, Daniel? Hmm. I was just going to say murder, but I don't think that's specific enough. Oh, the moment her regard ceased, I would have torn his heart out and drunk his blood. Yeah. That is correct, Emmy. Let's give you three more points for that. I'm giving a lot of three pointers. Let's... Let's, Very let's, Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom there. <laughs> That's where they got the inspiration from. Like Clearly, a lot yeah. of other things from Indiana Jones. Yeah, that Indiana were inspired Jones. Inspired by Wuthering Heights. Exactly. It's very. It's it's a little known fact. George George Lucas and Steven Spielberg very inspired by Wuthering Heights. <laughs> Indiana Jones trilogy. All right. Next question. Uh, end of chapter fourteen. Lockwood absolute buffoon <laughs> has some has some choice words to say about Catherine Heathcliff and what is the thing that he fears if I surrendered my heart to that young person and the daughter turned out a second edition of the mother what does that mean I don't get it it's a Lockwood <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like 
because remember he when he met when he met Kathy Jr. at over at Heathcliff's place, he was like, "Well, I shouldn't behave too well because she might fall for me rather than that Harriton fellow." So he's got this whole thing about like he thinks she's kind of cute. And so he's basically saying, well, if I fall in love with her and she turns out to be as crazy as her mother, that would be bad. Oh, this is Lockwood. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, got it. That makes more sense. Jerry, I'm going to give you a point for being such a good sport. And Andrew, <laughs> I'm going to give you a point for coming to Jerry's rescue. Yeah. Fuck Lockwood. What? Why the fuck, Lockwood? Do you think anyone would want to marry you? <laughs> God. Okay. Uh, moving on. How long does Catherine and Heathcliff's little deathbed makeout sesh last? Daniel. I I don't know the exact answer, but I just wanted to bring up that it was long enough that Nellie started to become uncomfortable and complain and be like, geez, how much longer is this going to go for? I really need to go to the washroom. This is getting uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, long enough to be uncomfortable. I'm going to give you... 0.25 points for that observation. Thank you, Daniel. Who knows the actual answer? Five minutes. Five minutes in heaven. Yes, Emmy. <laughs> that's correct. For um... That's how I advertise my services as, as, as an escort. <laughs> Five just, minutes just in heaven have, with Andrew. <laughs> just because I have realized the power of fractional points, I'm going to give you uh, 2.5. Okay. Um, yeah. Oh, gosh. Ooh, that would have been an awkward five minutes. Yeah. Nellie just kind of standing there twiddling her watching thumbs, them. watching the adultery happening in front of her. OK, what are Heathcliff's last words to Catherine? I didn't write them down because, you know, I take my notes sequentially. So when he said them, he was like he's saying he's going to be back. So as I was like, oh, he's going to be back. So I don't have to I don't have to note this one. <laughs> do, you, do you mean the last words before she dies or all the stuff he says to her after she dies? No, no. Because that's a pretty last... long conversation. <laughs> it's a pop quiz. You think I'm going to ask you to reproduce the dialogue entirely? No. Just give me the last fucking sentence that Heathcliff says to Catherine before she's dead. It's not a hard fucking question. Oh, my goodness. But you said the last words he says to her. You didn't specifically Daniel, say before she I swear she to Christ, <laughs> if you keep arguing on this point, you're going to get negative 50 goddamn points for this entire class. Emmy. Hush, my darling. Hush, hush, Catherine. I'll stay. If you shot me so, I'd expire with a blessing on my lips. Mm-hmm. If he shot me so, I'd expire with a blessing on my lips. How fucking romantic, Heathcliff. I'll give you another 2.5 points for that to bring you up to a five for the two last ones you answered in a row. All right. Time of birth for Catherine Lint Linton Heathcliff Jr. And this is a two-parter. Time of death for Catherine Linton the Elder. So when was the one born? Andrew, you had your hand up. Yeah, uh, the birth happened at midnight. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you a point for that. And when did Catherine Linton the Elder die? Jury. Two hours after that. Two hours later. I'll give you another point for that. And little Catherine is premature. So how many months is she along before she was born? Daniel. Seven. Seven months. I'll give you seven points for that. Because I pity you. <laughs> Wow. And okay. I'll take him anyway. <laughs> Heathcliff performs a disturbing act with a tree upon learning of Catherine's death. What does he do to that fucking tree? Andrew. 
He smashes his head against it like a cartoon character. Smashes his head. I observed. Yeah. He dashed his head against the knotted trunk and lifting up his eyes, howled, not like a man, but like a savage beast being goaded to death with knives and spears. I observed several splashes of blood about the bark of the tree and his hand and forehead were both stained. Probably the scene I witnessed was a repetition of others acted during the night. That's me if, if Netflix cancels my favorite show. <laughs> Andrew, I'll round that one out with five points for you. You've been getting a lot of little points throughout, so I actually don't know how many points anyone has at this point in the show. So this will be fun for me to add up here. All right, so that's the end of the cathartic pop quiz. Miss Charlotte is adding up the points, and we will then find out who is going to be the teacher's pet. And he was going to be the class dunce for this episode. The main consequences of being the class dunce, so you have to wear the imaginary purple dunce cap until the next episode. Everywhere you go, for everyone to imaginarily see. If you're the teacher's pet, you get to choose the form that the next reader's response will take. How's the math going? The math is done. I have tabulated your scores. And we have exciting news. We have a tie. First ever tie for teacher's pet coming in with 15 points each andrew and emmy rounding out second slash third place is daniel with 10.25 points jerry i'm wearing the hat today you're wearing the hat i deserve it I, I skimmed through most of the job <laughs> and you have reserved your just reward <laughs> You're the dunce. Put on the hat. Okay. So I guess uh, Emmy and I, we have to come to a consensus on the form of the next reader report. Shall we figure out who is doing that? Remember, Daniel can't do it this weekend. So, so Daniel, I am going to need a doctor's note if you're going to be uh, slacking off for next class. Well, Emmy can write that note. She's a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> the, totally the right kind. <laughs> wasn't specified <laughs> so between emmy and judy judy you have the honor of giving the reader response for next class Alrighty. so emmy what do you think i think an um, infomercial would be really funny i was thinking the diary entry that judy oh. would have written when she was 10 years old oh my gosh yes yes totally yeah, okay, we agree on that. So the uh, the form your report is going to take, Judy, is a diary entry that you would have written when you were 10 years old. Wait, so a diary entry as in, like, I'm I'm living the experience of Wuthering Heights or I'm, I'm the reading the book? Hmm. I feel like we should leave that choice to you, Jury. Take creative liberty in your reader response. You can imagine a, the, the diary of young Catherine. You can imagine the diary of young Jury reading Wuthering Heights for the first time at age 10, which, wow, that would scar you pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it would. <laughs> Next time on Wuthering Heights. Edgar dies. It's revealed that Heathcliff's father was actually Mr. Earnhardt, and is therefore Kathy's half-brother. Did you say Earnhardt? Earnshaw. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's like 1230 at night. I'm sick. Leave me alone. 
Heathcliff kills everyone. Who's left in the story then? Lockwood. 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 It's all a dream. Nellie Dean's not, she's a zombie. <laughs> Judy, what's yours? Nellie kills Lockwood. <laughs> oh God, we can only wish. We can only wish. All right. Well, let me and just who's switch been over. telling the story the whole time? It's a very avant-garde novel. All right. So that brings our fifth episode to a close. I would like to thank our expert, Miss Charlotte Sampson, for another episode full of wisdom and pauses that I've hopefully edited out. Thank also, you. this episode <laughs> would not have happened without the contributions of my fellow readers and book nerds, Judy Ito, Daniel Wishes, and Emmy Doe. Thanks to Rio Namagaya, who knows better than I do all the work she does. And also thanks to Hiroshi Tosa, who composed our theme tune, which we still don't have a final version of, but he's currently working on the fourth and probably final draft as we record this. So we haven't heard it yet. This show is edited by me. Well, actually, it's me, Joan Chen. But keep going. Oh, and thanks to you, our listeners, those dedicated masochists and insomniacs. We love you. If you want to support the podcast, head over to the Okama Theatre Group webpage at ytg.jp and click the support button to make a one-time donation. Or better yet, at this point, leave a five-star review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the podcast platform of your choice. Only leave a five-star review. I can't emphasize this enough. The way reviews work on this platform, damning us with faint praise is really damning us with faint praise. And finally, thanks to Emily Bronte, who, while she is likely nothing but teeth and bone fragments, uh, has contributed more to the world of art than I ever have. You're a fucking show-off, Emily. Stop making the rest of us look bad. So, class, you're assigned reading for next week. Is chapter 17 through 19. I'm not going to make you do four whole chapters for the next time. We can cut it off at three this time. It works. So, 17, 18, and 19 is what you're going to be reading next week. We'll be back soon with episode six. Check the show notes for the release date. See you then. Oh, I didn't say class dismissed. Class dismissed. Hey, this is Andrew just coming at you really quickly after the credits here to uh, add. Uh, first of all, this uh, audio production is copyright 2020, the Oklahoma Theater Group, all rights reserved. And. If you have an interest in becoming one of our wayward readers, there's a few slots opening up for season two. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, uh, we're actively recruiting. So head on over to waywardreaders.com, fill out the contact form, or pop on over to our Facebook page, Miss Charlotte's Finishing School for Wayward Readers, and drop us a line. We want to hear from you if you want to join the show. We don't know what book we're reading yet, but uh, we'll figure it out, maybe with your help. So. That's it. See you next time.